I'm Jackson Licka, and welcome to this episode of our 2017 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Creating a Cost-Effective Game Plan for Cover Crops and Strip-Till, is being brought to you by BlueJet. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. If there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know. We'll make every effort to get it added to our list. And by subscribing, that will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released and an opportunity to go back and check out earlier episodes from this year's series and our 2016 series. Thanks again to Blue Jet for sponsoring today's episode. For more than four decades, Blue Jet has been an innovator in fertilizer injection and conservation tillage equipment. Over that time, large acre farmers have found Blue Jet to be synonymous with durability, low maintenance, and return on investment. A founding title sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference, Blue Jet's Strip Tracker was the first strip till implement to combine onboard fertilizer carrying capacities with a stretched and staggered row unit. Visit www.blu-jet.com or call them today at 800-658-3127. And a reminder to mark your calendar to attend the fourth annual National Strip Tillage Conference, which will be held August 3rd and 4th in Omaha, Nebraska. Look for more information and event updates at www.striptillconference.com. Well, cover cropping continues to be a hot topic for strip tillers as farmers look to capitalize on organic nutrients and increase soil health. But choosing the right varieties, seeding methods, and timing applications are considerations strip tillers need to take into account when integrating cover crops to achieve the best results. Ongoing experimentation is encouraged, and something Claire, Illinois farmer Trent Sanderson has done with cover crops in his family's strip-till operation since 2012. Seeding a variety of mixes, including cereal rye, radishes, and red clover, Trent has also experimented with aerial and interseeding applications. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by BlueJet, we welcome Trent in to share his lessons learned with integrating cover crops and strip-till to include the good, the bad, and the ugly. Hey guys, welcome. Thanks again to Strip-Till Farmer for uh, uh, inviting me to be here. Um, uh, my name's Trent, I'm 27, I'm from North Central Illinois up by uh, DeKalb, if anybody's familiar with that, about 70 miles west of Chicago. Um, we are uh, uh, farmers that farm a lot of highly erodible ground, so cover crops became a part of our program in 2012, um, and uh, I'll just kind of go over our short story. Uh, uh, try to be open-minded with me today, I know that with cover crops, everybody's got a lot of different discussions about what's good, what's bad, what works, what doesn't. Um, what I'm here to do today is share our experience with you, uh, the good and the bad and the ugly, and uh, uh, hopefully we can have some time for open discussion here towards the end, and if I can answer any questions, uh, I'll do, do the best that I can. Uh, we've been, short history, we've been strip tilling since 2007 um, we, uh, with the goal in mind of conserving our, our soil and taking better care of it. Um, so we've been doing that since 2007 and then we've been practicing cover crops uh, uh, on a larger scale since about 2012. Um, before we started working with cover crops, uh, we uh, have a 50 head of cow-calf operation that we work with on the home farm. And to help uh, store hay for the winter, uh, we've been for a long time actually frost seeding red clover on our winter wheat ground. We've always got about 150 acres of wheat that uh, uh, we have in our rotation and we uh, would frost seed red clover about mid-March. 
uh, about that time when the snow cover's gone, but the ground still froze to support whatever equipment we're using to spread that. Uh, we're using medium red clover, and that's at uh, 12 pounds per acre. And we've used everything from fertilizer buggies to planes to uh, today we actually have a custom built machine that I use to interseed into standing corn, but I'll show you guys a picture of that a little later. Um, part of the reason for the rotation obviously was to get a cutting of hay off for the, for the cattle about uh, uh, September. Um, but also wherever we do this rotation, managed properly, if we can cut the red clover before it goes to flower, we've learned that the nitrogen that it's fixing will actually stay down in the root zone. But if we let it go to flower or a reproductive stage, like actually a lot of the cover crops used today, you start to bring those nutrients actually up into the plant and they'll release them slower. Or in this case, if you're going to harvest it for uh, uh, baleage or haylage, um, then that's actually moving up into the plant. So it comes with a little management for us, but on our highly erodible ground to compared to ground that is not highly erodible and performs a little better, wherever we're doing a corn, soybean, wheat, red clover rotation, we're getting corn yields that are equal to our ground that can handle corn on corn, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years in a row on a higher management. So that's also another reason that we went that route. But like I said, when we were doing this, we actually weren't really realizing or giving it a credit as a cover crop. Um, but that is something we still continue to do today, and it was, was and has been an eye-opening experience for our operation. And as we're harvesting the wheat, now when we're harvesting the wheat, uh, most of the time actually we're not interested in the straw. So we're just spreading that out behind the combine and adding that to the, the roughage of the bales when we harvest the red clover. So actually we're only cutting about the top half of the wheat plant here. You can see the red clover coming up in between the rows of wheat pretty clear. The only year that this did not work out for us was 2012. In our area we had a drought, but it was the best wheat crop that we ever harvested. We had over 110 bushel per acre wheat. So take that for what it's worth. The red clover did not survive, obviously from lack of moisture and being broadcast seed on top. Um, but otherwise we've had excellent luck with this. Um, one of the first mixes we actually started working with was on some of our cow pastures where we'd spread out some manure. Uh, we see the cows always seem to be out there longer than we intended to, high, high grazing. Um, so we started with some mixes that would, uh, the, the cattle would certainly benefit from just to try to put a value on some feed and put some rate of gain into the cattle. Uh, we had uh, turnips, rapeseed, uh, crimson clover, oats, all in an, in an intensive cover crop mix. Uh, that's that's kind of where we got our start and the corn that we put in this field uh, the year to follow, it, it was strip tilled. Um, it was on the same management program as the rest of our acres, and it out-yielded our entire farm operation by 18 bushel per acre. And we started to give some of that credit to the cover crop in this field, and so we expanded some of our cover crop practices. Um, one of the other first things that we started messing with cover crops was obviously after a small grains crop like oats or wheat, We've got a big window of opportunity to uh, put an intensive cover crop mix out there. Um, so one of the first things we did was we tried to use what equipment we already had. Um, we took our uh, 1200 Case IH planter and we got some different size seed discs to uh, plant radishes in 30 inch rows. And we also, and then we used, um, that was a sugar beet plate. You can use those to plant radish seeds. Now, the only thing we had trouble with was the radish seed is not a consistent seed size. So after a while, the monitor's screaming at us because our target rate isn't being achieved because the little seeds would start to fill and plug those holes in the seed plate. But uh, I think this was a 90 acre field and every 30 acres we had to just stop. And if you just ran your finger over that plastic seed plate, they'd pop right back out and we're good to go. So that was our experience with that. Um, and then we use RTK road guidance. So in that same field, we moved over 15 inches in between the radish rows and planted Austrian winter peas 
in, in 30 inch rows. That way, like I said, we were just trying to use what equipment that we already had. Um, Want to try something a little bit different than aerial seeding, just, just the whole blend. We didn't have a drill on our, on our farm at the time. Um, you could take notes on uh, uh, what, what we did. The radishes overall were two pounds per acre and the Austrian winter peas were at 20 pounds per acre. Those winter peas were inoculated the day of planting. Um, and uh, before I forget, uh, we got to keep in mind too, guys, that you know maybe a lot of us might be used to inoculating uh, our soybean crops today, and that's to help with you know some nodulation and nitrogen fixing. That's actually very key in cover crops as well. So just keep that in the back of your mind uh, to do some research on later. But if you guys are looking for nitrogen production out of cover crops, you have to inoculate them and you have to do it correctly. There's right and wrong ways to do that. Uh, this is that same field. Uh, this is after 60 days of growth with those radishes planted on 30 inch rows. Um, it's difficult to see, but right at the base of the radish, the entire row might as well have been strip tilled with a knife style toolbar. It was lifting the whole row. It's pretty, pretty neat to see. Um, the radishes, you know, the, the biggest base of that plant was over uh, 12 inches long. Um, obviously the tap root goes, goes deeper. This particular day I didn't have a, a deep enough spade to go down and dig up the entire root. Uh, so both of those cover crops winter killed for us up in north central Illinois. Um, and this is what they look like come next spring after the snowfall is gone. Uh, the radishes got to be a decent size. They were a little bit bigger than a half dollar or so in diameter. Um, in a row, and you can see the winter peas in between them. The radishes almost look like standing cornstalk rows, actually. Uh, then we planted them. Um, we did strip till this field, and I, uh, to, the, to this day, I give my dad a hard time. He's here today, but I wanted to leave a, a test strip, and I wish we would have. So if you ever get a chance to leave a test strip on, on anything, you know, just leave one pass for something, just to try to learn a little something a little bit. Now we, we, we do more test strips today uh, anyhow. But what we ended up doing is we strip tilled in between the winter pea 30 inch row and the radish row. Um, just for sake of trying to get some benefits from both of those covers so that the roots had a chance to reach both sides. Um, and I know the question will probably come up, but our nitrogen management was no different than the rest of our corn crop for this particular field. Um, so we did, we did put uh, nitrogen down in the spring. Um, this is what the corn plant looked like. And I know some, pe some people talk about maybe some horror stories of those radishes live in really big holes. And you know they thought that we were really brave to put the radish rows on 30 inch rows and plant nearby them. Um, it was a non-issue for us. Now maybe it's because of our soil types but we're running on a lot of silt loam clay style soils. Um, if the radishes have broken off and broken down, those holes are no more than a half inch deep. Not a big deal. Um, any radishes that are left are just kind of falling over and becoming a part of the soil profile. What I want to chat about is uh, some, some folks maybe being worried about how many pounds per acre of cover crop mixes or even just a monoculture of uh, uh, aerial seeding. Um, this is a shot, uh, this is uh, first week of May last year where we fall, had it flown on. It was a fall mix that was 73 pounds, or excuse me, this is on 518. Um, this is a spring strip that I'm doing right here. And so this is where the spring strip is being done here. And this is where it's been undisturbed. When you guys drive down the road and look at the neighbor's farm maybe that are practicing cover crops and it's green from one end to the other, it's a completely different story when you're in the tractor cab and you look straight down. There's space between the plants. You know, it's completely different from when you look at it straight across versus standing over it. And I guess that's kind of what I wanted to do with this picture and say, even with a 73 pound mix, we typically have, our, our winners are kind of a 50-50. They're gonna be really hard or kind of hard on a cover crop stand. So we didn't have anything killed here. 
um, but we had uh, a normal winter with plenty of snowfall and cover for a long period of time, and we still had quite a bit survive. Uh, this particular mix had cereal rye and triticale that were the primary uh, cover crops that, that, that survived. Also something I want to point out is with strip till and this heavy of a seed mix, look how much of that green area we're actually flipping over and terminating just with the strip till pass. So at the very least in that nutrient zone and in the strip where we intend to plant that, that, that corn, we don't have a lot of high pressure from a quote unquote weed or cover crop uh, uh, standpoint. Interseeding. Um, this is probably one of the bigger reasons why I was asked to, to speak today. Um, we are in our third year of interseeding cover crops into V5 to V8 corn. Um, first question that always comes up, well, what about crop insurance? Uh, we have a grip style crop insurance, which is based off of our county average. So for our operation, um, we're, we're, at, we're at no risk of losing our, our crop insurance support. Uh, that can be different for everybody, but that, like I said, that's just our situation. And uh, we haven't particularly, you know, told them, you know, 100% of what we do and to ask questions later. <laughs> um, the, uh, what, we've, what we've learned with interseeding is, or well, here, here's why we're doing it. So in North Central Illinois, we just don't have a lot of opportunity for fall seeding cover crops, in my opinion. Um, about as quick as we're gonna be fall seeding them, um, aerial application's about our only option that can be expensive. Not that I'm against it, we still use some aerial application in, in different cases. Um, but there's just not a lot of growing time after the crop comes off. And you know, I think everybody can recognize that aerial seeding versus uh, uh, and earlier aerial seeding versus drilling, all of those are gonna, be, are gonna be different results. So what we were looking for is to spread our risk out. So okay, let's frost seed some red clover behind wheat, check. Let's interseed some, some of our cover crops into standing corn. Not all of it, let's do some of it. All right, check. Uh, let's put some uh, Austrian winter peas in with the red clover. After, we, after our wheat harvest. All right, check, let's do that. All right, let's, uh, let's seed some, aerial seed some cereal rye uh, in, into corn. And when we start taking some beans off that are maybe uh, early maturity, uh, let's, let's drill some of those. So we're just trying to spread our risk out a little bit. Um, and so that's why we, we, we jumped into interseeding. Um, so what varieties are we using? What have we seen? Um, where we came across the concept was from uh, some colleagues in Ontario that had uh, start, started doing this and sharing the information. Uh, what we're using is annual ryegrass and crimson clover. Um, we've tried some different concentrations with the overall target rate of 20 pounds per acre of the total mix. Um, so far, what we've tried to do is if we're uh, gonna be going back to corn, we're looking at a higher concentration of uh, clover for more, more nitrogen fixing. Um, if we're going to beans, we'll put a higher concentration of annual ryegrass in. Today, that, today that's how we've managed it. Um, what, what else, with those two cover crops, they, they behave such as, uh, we got a chance while the corn's short to get some sunlight, some moisture, get them germinate them, get them started, and get, get a couple inches on the plant height. As the row shades, both of these go dormant. So they're not, in a, uh, they're not gonna be any yield robbing situations with these two covers. They get spindly, thin, sometimes they even look like they die. Our best evaluation of this has truly been when we harvest because they each field seems to behave differently. Fields that have thinner stands of corn uh, actually have a, a taller, longer lasting, it seems like, all the way through harvest cover crop. Uh, fields that are high, higher producing for corn, um, they seem to die off, but then they, they come back to life. It's actually been pretty remarkable. Um, overall, we've seen uh, on, our, on our own operation about 90% success rate 
with this seating option. Um, see if I forget anything here. Uh, I've had a couple questions on this too, having given this talk, you know, if rainfall makes any difference. And I think it certainly does. Um, we've, like, we've been strip tilling for a long time, so actually I feel like our soils hold on to moisture uh, better, better than some of our neighbors. Um, so far, last, the last two Junes, we've had anywhere from 12 to 17 inches of rain in the month of June. So they've been exceptionally wet. This past year, was, or this current season, excuse me, that, that's not been the case. We've been in more of a normal rainfall uh, state where we're more like six to seven inches. Um, so in all three years, the, the, the results have, have pretty well been the same. The only difference is when they germinated and uh, how tall they got before they went dormant. This is that same field uh, when the corn's maturing, the sunlight's starting to come through. There again, there's not a lot more growth than this previous picture, but we've got a head start here. Had we aerial seeded or any stuff that we've aerial seeded has maybe barely had a chance to germ before we start covering up with some of the residue of the corn. Um, so we've really appreciated harvesting on a green mat, if you will, in these cases. Here's the machine we built. So we're all about practicality and affordability, I think just like anybody would be in this room. Um, so the first thing we did when we were thinking interseeding was, the, the first way we did it was a three-point broadcast seeder. Just drive as fast as we can with the tractor across the field, spread it, probably just a lot like a, an aerial applicator, just at a slower speed. Worked pretty good. Um, but we wanted to get past the tops of the corn plants and get down closer to the soil profile and have a more consistent stand from row to row to row. Uh, so what we were able to find was uh, what we had. So we had an old row cultivator sitting in the fence row. Took all of the iron off of it and uh, uh, used that as, as our base. Um, then we were able to find um, an outfit out of Minnesota that refurbishes Gandhi air seeder boxes. Um, they they kind of sandblast them, paint them, replace any parts need replacing, and we were able to buy them for half the cost of a brand new one, which I think was brand new was $14,000 uh, for a 16 outlet. Um, so we were able to save some money there. Um, then we just uh, local, we, we have a, a fertilizer dealer supply not too far away, so then we got some hose that would uh, fit on the Gandhi air seeder unit, and that also came with deflector plates on the bottom of the hose that as the seed strikes it, it spreads it out in an even pattern. Um, so that's the machine that we came up with. Um, compared to high boys, obviously we're limited on crop height with this configuration. We run a 8300 John Deere, it's got 19 inches of clearance. And there is a point where the corn will break uh, for plant height, it's just something that we have to monitor. But our target is to be, begin interseeding uh, V6, really, at the end of the day. And we'll just run hard until we've got all the acres covered. Um, so that's what that looks like. Um, this is something else that we just use as a general broadcast seeder. So like for our red clover, for example, when we're frost seeding, we use this piece of machinery. Um, it matches our, our planter width. So we're doing controlled traffic with RTK, even with applying our cover crops interseeding. Um, but then at the same time, when we're doing our red clover, it's a broadcast seeder that's actually very accurate. Um, and something else that's nice when I'm running this from the cab, I can see each outlet. So if I have one plugged, it's actually really easy, easy to, to, to see it uh, and, and address that quickly. Um, and I will say this, um, while I'm thinking of it, the, I've learned the value of cleaned seed. So if some of you guys keep back maybe some wheat, raise some of your own cereal rye, anything like that, if you don't clean it, machines like this plug up. You can't even make a round because of the chaff that's left over. Um, so keep, keep that in mind if you're ever, you know, trying to maybe raise some of your own covers. There's value in having someone come out and clean that seed, seed after you've harvested. Any cover crop that we have that has more top growth before the winter has a better chance of winter survivability in our area. 
So that's another reason why we're trying to give these covers a little bit of a head start. Um, kind of happened, happened by mistake. We were uh, mixing, mixing some cover crops and uh, we ended up interseeding uh, from, from a previous mixture some turnips. Uh, so just by, uh, uh, by default, we figured out that you can interseed turnips. And this field in particular was gonna be uh, grazed for some of our cows. So what a bonus that was. This might spook some people. <laughs> uh, I'm a, I'm always like to ask a lot of questions. Is anybody planting green like this in here? Excellent. That's the most hands I've had in any presentation. Awesome. Uh, what we're doing here is we're planting soybeans behind a corn crop. This was interseeded annual rye annual ryegrass. Excuse me. Just one monocrop. Um, and uh, uh, just from a management standpoint, we fight some giant ragweeds in this field. So we're looking for ways to help choke them out and obviously build organic matter, all the good uh, positive things that come with cover crops. So we actually ixnade uh, adding any broad leaves to our cover crop program here in case we want to sneak in with like a 2,4-D application. Um, but we, this is 20 pounds of annual ryegrass interseeded in June that this is uh, going to be towards the end of May that we're, we're looking at. We're going to plant into it green. Um, and we've got two different planters here. We've got a Case IH no-till 1200 planter that does great. So it's got a no-till coulter. The planter following is just a standard 900 Case IH planter. Um, the stand for, for soybeans no matter which planter we use in this situation, there, there's no difference in yield, no difference in stand, no difference visually throughout the entire season, uh, just for, for that, that little bit of feedback. Um, what we'll do here is, as soon as it's been planted, um, we'll come right behind the planters and terminate the cover crop. We'll get back to Trent's discussion shortly, but I want to once again thank our sponsor, Blue Jet, for making this program possible. For more than four decades, Blue Jet has been an innovator in fertilizer injection and conservation tillage equipment. Over that time, large acre farmers have found Blue Jet to be synonymous with durability, low maintenance, and return on investment. A founding title sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference, Blue Jet's Strip Tracker was the first strip till implement to combine onboard fertilizer carrying capacities with a stretched and staggered row unit. Visit www.blu-jet.com or call them today at 800-658-3127. Reflecting on Trent's comments thus far, one of his priorities with getting started in cover cropping was to be as efficient as possible. He talked about using equipment they already had on the farm, specifically a Case IH planter for seeding radishes and Austrian winter peas. Seeing positive results three years ago, Trent assembled an inner seeder using an old row cultivator outfitted with a Gandhi air seeder box. Both approaches were economical entry points into cover cropping and allowed Trent to continue testing different varieties and mixes. He also noted that he's seen a 90% success rate with interseeding cover crops. Let's get back into the program now and hear more from Trent Sanderson on the results of some recent cover crop experimentation. We had kind of a neat experience here. Uh, uh, this spring, we uh, broadcast seeded 70 pounds of uh, cereal rye, excuse me, on soybean stubble. Um, for example, it was in a 160 acre field. We began fall strip tilling it immediately after we broadcast seeded it. Um, wherever, then I got rained out halfway through. So before the seed germinated, I went through and made 80 acres of strips. On that section, the cereal rye got mixed in with the strip and it did germinate in the strip. Not, not, a, not of concern to mine. We were gonna be terminating the cereal rye early for the following corn crop anyway. 
on the remaining 80 acres where it had rained, uh, it was long enough that the cereal rye had germinated and we made a strip. We actually had clean strips the following spring. I don't know that from this experience that we prefer one or the other, but I did just want to point that out. So if you're worried about having a clean strip when you're making a fall strip with cover crops, wait till the seed germinates, make the strip. You're not going to hurt the cereal rye that you are driving on with your equipment. It will come back, but you'll have a nice clean strip. If it doesn't matter to you and you're more worried about maybe like erosion control, which is something we were concerned about in this situation, we prefer the cereal rye in the strip, um, then, then you, can, you can do it that way too. Um, like I said, we're worried about erosion in this field, even though we did fall strip till it versus spring. Um, what we're doing with our cereal rye today ahead of our corn crop is we're terminating it the first opportunity that we get. That, that is a number one priority on our farm to help with nitrogen being tied up and or available uh, to the following corn crop. So what we're really paying attention to and Mike Plumer does a great job with providing this information with whether it's annual rye or cereal rye, you need three nights above 38 degrees before you can terminate because you want that plant actively growing. So that's key, especially with annual rye, three nights above 38 degrees. And then spray between 10 and two, nowhere outside those boundaries because it will not work 100%. It'll terminate some, but not all. And let me tell you from my, my experience, you've got to really follow those guidelines. Um, so with cover crops, as a side note, if you have your own sprayer and you're looking to do cover crops or you're currently doing them, I think you can really appreciate owning your own machine and getting the job done when you need it to be done. Some experiments that we played with last year, um, we had some wet holes that drowned it out. And uh, that same time that I was interceding while I had the machine out, I had some places where I could get into some wet holes next to the road and seed some radishes. So I thought, what the heck? I seeded 10 pounds of tillage radishes on July 1st. They got huge. Um, this is a water bottle, standard size water bottle here to give you some perspective. Um, a lot of the radishes had uh, two different uh, tap roots, sometimes three. Uh, they did go to seed, wasn't terribly concerned about it. What we were doing here is we were trying to poke some holes in the ground, reduce the compaction, water, increase the water infiltration, and, and just try to see what we could, what impact we could do with an intensive cover crop. Um, even though they were going to seed, the, the nutrient value gets up into the, the plant uh, and, but, but you know, it, it doesn't change because our, we still have the same chemical plan re regardless of that outcome. And it was on a small scale, but uh, took a few pictures of that. Here's the radishes standing upright in the wet holes. Um, this one in particular, we actually did in a soybean field where there was a drowned out. At the very least, we're, uh, uh, you know, we're helping with some weed pressure too. You know, if, I, if anything's gonna be growing there, I want it to be what I would like it to be. And radishes just seem to be the, the, the seed that was left over in, in the shed to use up. So uh, that's, that's what they look like. Okay, and then, now you guys remember me talking about 73 pounds per acre of a mix of cover crops and uh, letting, it, letting it grow up and uh, uh, how thick it might be in the field when you're looking actually straight down from the tractor cab. You know, there's spaces between the plants. Well, we, had, we were tested ourselves. We had a wheat field that was uh, planted that uh, we had an estimated, you know, gonna make probably 30 bushel per acre. The winter was pretty hard on it. So we made the choice to terminate it and go to corn. And we were using a Dawn Pluribus strip-till unit um, so we thought, well, what better time to test it than now? So we went through an intended wheat field to make strips with this, uh, not knowing what the results would be, uh, but not afraid to learn. This is what it looks like from behind the tractor. We made a beautiful seed bed, it was excellent. Um, the wheat here was about boot high. Um, this is one of the thicker parts of the field. I wanted to log, you know, where actually we got a really thick stand of wheat or 
cover crop uh, left over. Um, made an excellent, excellent strip. Really happy with it. Four days later, we planted into it, and then we terminated the rye. That's, that's what we did. There was no rain in between. The strips were not dried out. Um, it plant, planted really well, looked great. So you can do this. And strip till, in my opinion, makes this concept even simpler because you can build a seed bed. I know that different pieces of equipment would probably react one way or the other. But like I said, today I'm sharing my experience with you and this was a fun one. This is what that same field looked like. Uh, this is probably the second week of June. So the wheat's been terminated, you can still see it. Uh, being that the wheat was taller, has a little higher carbon to nitrogen ratio, the, the older that the plant gets, the straw stuck around, actually helped out with some uh, weed management. And again, we treated this corn, the nutrient program, the same that we did on all of our acres that we were growing corn on. Um, after harvest, and actually, so this thing had all kinds of activity in it. So in that same field, we interseeded that annual rye and crimson clover also in that field. So that's why you see after harvest here, we've got some annual rye and clover still sticking around. Um, if you guys, uh, so from my presentation earlier this afternoon, the general session, we keep a pretty tight track of all of our data and, and numbers and we had a uh, field right across the street from this that's very similar soil type, managed the same. Um, uh, and we earned uh, $26 an acre more net in this field where we terminated the wheat, stripped tilled, planted, interseeded, rather than uh, uh, corn after soybeans across the street managed with the same nutrient program um, after, after we considered everything, all of our cost of production. Just our experience, this isn't years and years and years after data, but this year was a positive outcome. Um, kind of to wrap things up, and I know we've got, I'm sure there's a ton of questions. Um, you know, th this is what worked for our operation. Uh, we just tried to take concepts and pieces of equipment that we had and, and see how we could make those, make those work the best. Um, you know, our climate is different from everybody else's in this room. Uh, so, you know, it's just best to understand what you're, what you're coming up against or what your struggles are today and then to start look at different management styles with cover crops, how, how they would work best for, for your operation. And try stuff. Um, don't be afraid to try stuff. I, I, I get so many questions on what our results are with different things from, from people that just haven't tried anything at all. Uh, it, get your hands dirty, you know, go dig, dig some roots up with cover crops, understand what's going on. It, it, it's a lot of fun. There's all kinds of stuff going on out there. Um, apply everything practically and, and, you know, if I don't get a chance to answer your question today or, or, or even later, if you want to uh, shoot me an email, I'd be happy to answer any questions, but good luck to you. It's, you know, we've got uh, an average probably 50 crops that we can all grow in this room. So we've got 50 shots to get it right, right? <laughs> um, with that being said, uh, question was, you know, residuals with herbicides and probably interseeding is probably the, the topic of that question, correct? Or afterwards. Or afterwards. Um, we had an interesting experience with that actually. Uh, so last year, uh, where we had 17 inches of rain in June, we, where we planned to interseed, we screwed up and we laid down some atrazine. Uh, just got, you guys know how it goes. When you get in the heat of the battle, it's time to go mix the chemical and let it rip. Um, so actually I figured out that uh, uh, management mistake when we were looking back on our records. Um, that's where that field of um, uh, where we planted soybeans into annual ryegrass. But I'm going to tell you because we had 17 inches of rain, we wiped out that residual. And that's why we had that result. I did not expect good results in this field. Um, but over, overall, we are paying very close attention. Um, we, we, we spray our own fields. Um, so I think that, that helps us stop and think, you know, okay, what's going, what's going in here? I mean, I, I keep track of what, what we're mixing, what the rates are, um, you know. But a lot of our program today, 
right, right or wrong is uh, simply a couple passes of Roundup PowerMax. Uh, that, that's what we're doing today to accomplish the interseeding. I see issues beginning to arise with that moving forward, um, and we're just gonna try to tackle that as best we can. Yes, sir. The latest date. Um, those are gonna vary a little bit. Uh, what, where are you at? Where are you located? Okay, and so you're similar climate to us. Um, Mid-September, mid to late September probably. Um, as soon as you start to slide into that October timeframe, uh, cereal rye in that region is cereal rye, triticale, those are about gonna be what, what's gonna work for you if it gets too late. See, the problem is with, 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 with radishes, like a lot of people will, will aerial seed radishes. Well, that's great, but they're not very shade tolerant. So they'll germ and they'll grow, but they're not gonna get any bigger than your pinky. Um, uh, but if you, and radishes are just so expensive per pound, I'd rather see those applied after a, a, a cereal crop because uh, you'll, you'll, you'll get more benefits out of that. Um, if you're going later and you want the benefits of something like a radish, try rapeseed, dwarf Essex rapeseed. It's half the cost. Your seeds per pound are quite a few more than that of radish. They're quite a bit smaller. They will winter over, um, but you know if you guys are already using either some sort of tillage or herbicides in your practice, I mean, don't, don't be afraid of that. You, you'll, you'll be able to terminate rapeseed if you add in like a, a, a pine of 2,4-D, it'll be no problem. Did I answer your question? Yes. Well, that wheat field that we terminated was probably the thickest mat that we've ever had that we strip tilled into. Um, there again, it's, it's just understanding how, uh, how those plants are, how active those plants are. So night, three nights above 38 degrees, you know, time of the day, sunshine, rainfall. I mean, that, that all comes into play. Well, I know for, for us this spring, um, April 16th was our first opportunity. And the day I did it, it was sunny. We had th uh, three nights over 40 degrees. It was 70 degrees that day. And I had 200 acres to terminate. Um, and I, I got over that between 11 and 1 p.m. Um, today, we, uh, we're choosing not to do that, just from a harvestability standpoint. Oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. He gentleman asked if uh, uh, we have tried interseeding into soybeans with that same machine. Um, today we're not, uh, maybe we just haven't uh, thought of the right practice. Um, it's really from a harvestability standpoint. I mean, it takes a while for the rows to shade on 30 inch soybeans, which is what we're running. Um, so to, you know, and by the time we would harvest, I'd really rather not take in a whole lot of green material. <laughs> um, but that, that's an excellent question. Uh, don't see the value in um, running down the soybeans that late because once you run down beans that are that tall, they're, they're toast, in my opinion. Uh, and even, even though if we could take the duels off of that tractor, um, we're, not, we're not using it today because it's, that implements uh, uh, the way it works out. It's 37 and a half feet wide just by configuration because we're going in between the rows. Um, and so that's a, lot of, that's a lot of driving on the headlands. Um, I think for us, or anybody for that matter, uh, it, it becomes a, a, a timing thing. So are you doing, or, or wherever that's happening, are they planting the crop, doing a burn down, and before they do a second pass of uh, glyphosate, for example, they're interceding, or is there a second pass happening and then uh, uh, going in with an interceder? Okay, excellent. No, I, it's ni nice to hear that. I'd actually, like I said, with our equipment now, we're gonna start to try to venture a little farther than we're comfortable. <laughs> Thanks for that input. So the, the question was with our con concerning our mix uh, between 
annual rye and crimson clover, whether we're going back to corn or to, to, to soybeans. Um, today, with, with what we were doing there is our thought was, okay, let's put in more annual rye than crimson clover. Is there an equation that we're using based on nitrogen with the clover? Not in particular, you know, I mean, soybeans need, need some nitrogen. They don't fix everything that they need, um, but the clover is more expensive than the rye. So the investment seemed to be better with the annual rye to break up compaction, go deeper, grab some nutrients. Um, and going back to corn, when we're doing corn, it's uh, 12 pounds of annual rye, eight pounds of crimson clover. That's what we're doing. Okay, and we're actually, I, this, this, this season, um, uh, there's some positive benefits of putting rapeseed ahead of a soybean crop. So we've got one field that we tried a mix of annual rye and rapeseed. Um, and I'm pretty sure we did eight, it was still a 20 pound mix, 18 pounds of annual rye grass and two pounds of rapeseed. So that's a cornfield going to soybeans. Yes. Mm -hmm. Got a question over here. Yes. Uh, I was gonna ask if you've had any nematode increased Increases uh, problems. I talked to an agronomist, and he was real concerned with with that. That nobody talks about that. Sure, uh, great question. Uh, for us on, on on our ground, we don't have any pressure today. Not to say that it's not something that's upcoming that we will have to uh, you know manage. So today, our struggle is uh, lower organic matter. So we're trying to do whatever practices we can that we think would help benefit that. Uh, you know, compaction was an issue before we started strip tilling, now it's not, so we've helped cure something like that. Um, with cover crops today, we're trying to increase our organic matter and maybe uh, depend a little less on commercial fertilizer. So at the moment, our focus is there. It's not outside the question, it's something that we monitor. Um, you know, there again, before going, if we're interceding rapeseed, with annual ryegrass before soybeans, it sounds like that's going to be a better practice to do to help combat that. With, uh, so that, 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 that's our thought today. Um, so, so far in our experience, we don't have any trouble with that. Great question. Today, today with our practice, um, we're, we're raising uh, about 190 bushel corn on average. Um, with 160 units of credit. Now, whether that credit comes from fertilizer or crop rotation, whether there's clover before the corn crop or soybeans, that's what we're shooting for and working with. Um, today, since we've been cover cropping since 2012, we've had good results, bad results. The interseeding has added some consistency to it. Uh, so, so far, we're not deleting any nitrogen out of our program because of where we're at today. Um, in my opinion, so far, we don't have an excellent way to measure the credit. Um, I'm looking forward to measuring the biomass on top to help consider what might be available. Um, but today, our, our nitrogen program is when we do a uh, burn down application before the crop emerge, pre-emerge, we're using 32% as a carrier with 40 units of N. Um, we might be changing that in the future because we're recognizing that some of that nitrogen is getting tied up in the residue. We're, we're struggling with that, but there again, we're trying to be efficient with all of our passes as well. Um, but then we're, uh, we, we, we've side dressed for quite a few years with a side dress bar. Um, here and there, we'll use urea as an aerial application and this year we've been using Y-drops as a part of our program. So uh, all, all that also with uh, obviously strip-till. So we're trying to split it up as best we can. We don't give our current cover crop other than uh, red clover any N credit today. Hoping to get there. How much credit do you give the clover? 40 units if we get it before it flowers. That's and sometimes we don't. It's, it's, we're up to Mother Nature on that one sometimes. Um, but we've recognized that that's important. It, it's, it's been efficient. 
um, you know, for, for, making, for making that pass. But uh, this, year, this year seemed to have actually showed that uh, uh, nitrogen shortage up front a little bit more than other years. So we've recognized that and are trying to weigh out our options moving forward with what equipment we have, you know, see what we can do. So if you're going to beans, um, actually, if you look at buckwheat, Buckwheat is an excellent cover to try to slide in early in the spring before a soybean crop. Um, it flowers in about 35 to 45 days. Um, it's important if you want to get it started and start that day count early that you plant it with like a drill or drag it in. You can broadcast seed it um, and do it just before a rain. Um, we, did, we did that in one field this year. just by circumstances sat in dry dirt for two weeks and we were two weeks behind on it. The stand was pretty tough, um, but that will, you know, buckwheat can help with that or give you a cover crop option before beans that doesn't have to be applied in the fall. Um, and it also helps make your phosphorus actually quite a bit more available for the soybean crop. And our plan on that was to no-till soybeans into it and then turn them into buckwheat. Thank you, Trent, for sharing your research and experience on utilizing cover crops in a successful strip-till system. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Blue Jet, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. And you can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Finally, another invitation to come out and attend the 4th Annual National Strip Tillage Conference coming up on August 3rd and 4th in Omaha, Nebraska. Look for more information and speaker updates on the conference at www.striptillconference.com. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on April 5th for the next episode in our 2017 podcast series. Part 1 of a strip-till roundtable discussion, Lessons Learned Developing a Successful Strip-Till System, where I had the opportunity to sit down with five farmers from different areas for an intimate conversation about nutrient management and equipment setups. For Trent Sanderson, Blue Jet, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening. <laughs>